Well, let me uh, invite you now to open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 19. And uh, we are still in Paul's third missionary journey. He's still at Ephesus. And he's there for a period of about three years. So a lot of ministry is going to be going on at Ephesus. Uh, but we're moving towards the end of what uh, Luke, by the direction of the Holy Spirit, records for us about what's going on with the ministry there in Ephesus. So I'd like to begin reading in Acts chapter 19. And I'll start in verse 21 and actually read down through the end of the chapter. So we'll be looking at verses 21 through 41. So, since all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God might be equipped and adequate for every good deed, may the Lord bless the reading of His holy word this morning. Verse 21. Now, after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. After that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little profit, or business, I should say, to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. And when they heard this, and were filled with rage, they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. Also, some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then, some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. Some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander, since the Jews had put him forward, And having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them all as they shouted for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. After quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, 
Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? So, since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then, if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and proconsuls are available, let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events, since there is no real cause for it. And in this connection, we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. And after saying this, he dismissed the assembly. And may God bless the reading of his word. Well, why does uh, Luke devote so much time and attention to this story? Well, that's one of the issues we'll try to solve as we work through it today. But what we certainly learn is that Christianity collides with pagan cultures and worldviews. Now, Paul had been teaching in the school of Tyrannus for two years. And in that ministry, he would have engaged the worldviews that were existing there in Ephesus and in Asia and in the whole Roman Empire. And he would be bringing God's standards of morality and God's truth and the gospel to oppose the, the worldviews that were out there that everybody was embracing. And in the process, he would have been exposing sin and offering Jesus Christ as the only answer for sinners who want forgiveness and the hope of eternal life. Now obviously, whenever Christ is preached and the gospel is preached and expanding, then there's going to be opposition. And there is an ongoing war of the worldviews that was going on in Ephesus. It's going on today as well. But there is always that conflict that will be going on. And one of the commentaries that um, I consulted this week, Simon Kistemacher, he said, when God's kingdom advances, Satan's must yield. But the prince of darkness does not capitulate without combat. He mobilizes the forces of idol worshipers in Ephesus and incites a riot. So basically, here's the war of the worldviews. So Ephesus is caught up primarily in the worship of this goddess Artemis and all the, the thinking and the religions associated with idolatry. And here comes the gospel of Jesus Christ that confronts all of that. So there is this battle, this intense battle. And it's going to break out in a riot uh, within Ephesus. Before we look at that, as we begin our section, verse 21 and 22, Luke tells us that Paul is already thinking beyond Ephesus. And so we look at verse 21 again, and it says, Now after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia. When you see Achaia, thank Corinth, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So here you have the Apostle Paul thinking, okay, after I finish this third missionary journey and get back to Jerusalem, 
Then I'm hoping to go all the way to Rome. So he's thinking way in advance. But we find that Paul was a man who had a huge heart for missions and taking the Gospel. Now notice he purposed this in the Spirit. Some translations may have a lowercase s on Spirit. Some may have a capital S referring to the Holy Spirit. And commentators debate which is it. Maybe it's a combination of both. Maybe it's the Holy Spirit putting this plan in His human spirit. But certainly He's being directed by God. And, and obviously that's where God is going to lead Him ultimately to Rome. Not the way He thinks, but He's going to end up in Rome. But He has a heart for the Gospel. And Paul, at, in his very core, was a pioneer missionary. He wanted to take the Gospel to the ends of the earth. To boldly go where no one has gone before. And Star Trek did not invent that saying, by the way. That was the Apostle Paul's vision. He wanted to go where no one else had gone. He wanted to go with the Gospel of Jesus Christ to proclaim truth and salvation through Christ to people who had never heard of it before. That's in the heart of this man of God. So he's been at Ephesus for three years, but now the urge is building up within him. I've done all that I can to establish a church here. It's time for me to press on into new frontiers and new and new territory. So in verse 22, he's going to send into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus. And he himself is going to stay in Asia for a while longer. So, just to uh, review, Paul is in uh, Ephesus, right there, and he's sending up these other guys, Timothy and, and Erastus, up into Macedonia. Now, why is he doing that? Well, I'll explain to you in just a second. But he's been up there on his second missionary journey. That's where he founded these churches. And he sends these two guys up there to prepare something and to prepare his eventual getting there. Uh, and he has, he has something in mind, certainly. Eventually, he's going to uh, travel up into Macedonia, come back down into Achaia and spend some time in, in uh, Corinth, and then eventually he'll backtrack all the way down to Jerusalem where he's going to basically bring a monetary gift from the Macedonians and from the saints at Corinth to help the, the Jews in Jerusalem that are suffering. They're poor, they're suffering. And so basically the mission is to go up into Macedonia and to collect the money that they have promised to give to the poor saints in uh, Jerusalem. Now, just uh, another thing to, to consider, while he's at Ephesus on this trip, third missionary journey, he's going to write the letter of 1 Corinthians to Corinth while he's still in Ephesus. And then when he travels up to Macedonia, he's going to get feedback from 1 Corinthians. And when he's up in Macedonia, he's going to write 2 Corinthians to the, the church at Corinth. And then when he finally gets down to Corinth, he's going to write his letter, his, his, uh, his masterpiece of the Gospel, if you will, to Rome. And all this is on the third missionary journey. And then he'll backtrack again and come all the way back down to Jerusalem. Now, what he says in 1 Corinthians, he's in Ephesus, he writes 1 Corinthians, 
And he writes to them and he says, I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide open door for effective service has opened to me and there are many adversaries. Many adversaries. And then earlier in 1 Corinthians, he's still at Ephesus when he's writing it. He says, if from human motives I fought wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? And you think, well, who are the wild beasts at Ephesus that he fought with? They're probably not literal wild animals like he was thrown in a gladiator cage and had to fight with wild animals. He's probably using this as a way to refer to some of the human enemies, some of the opposition, not only at the synagogue, but also among the the Gentiles in Ephesus. We don't know. People can have different ideas on that. But there's a lot of opposition. There's a lot of war against the worldviews going on that he acknowledges when he's in Ephesus and he writes to Corinth and he tells them, I've got many adversaries here and I have fought with wild animals while I'm here. Whatever that refers to. And then when he finally gets to Corinth later on and he writes his letter to, to the Romans from Corinth, he says this, Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they are pleased to do so and they are indebted to them for if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. So what Paul wants to do is to go through Macedonia and Achaia, which he's already done by the time he gets to Corinth. And he's collected this money for the poor saints back in Jerusalem. And he is anxious to collect all this money, go back to Jerusalem, give it to the saints, because he wants the Jewish believers to know that the Gentile churches in Macedonia and Achaia have their back. Basically, that they are one in Christ. And to help them to deal with that ongoing struggle of what? Gentiles in the church? Gentiles getting the Holy Spirit? Gentiles in in the new covenant? And by sending this money gift is to let them know the bond of love and unity that exists between the Jewish believers in Jerusalem and the Gentile believers out in other parts of the Roman Empire. So it's a very strategic thing to help develop that that love and that fellowship within uh, these two ethnic groups within the church. Well, at this point, uh, we know that uh, Paul is going to stay longer in Asia. He says at the end of verse 22, uh, because again, there's an effective door for service has been opened to him there. And there's still adversaries. So he's not ready to leave yet, but he's making plans to leave. Well, now let's kind of start in verse 23 and look at this big conflict that begins to develop. The war of the worldviews that I'm kind of describing it as. And this is the gospel versus the goddess, primarily Artemis or Diana, as the Latin would say. So this is where we now enter into the main story that Luke uh, spends so much time developing. So start in verse 23. About that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. Now, no, this is just kind of a style of Luke. He says there is no little disturbance and no little business. 
He likes to use understatements sometimes to, to draw attention to this is a big riot that was going on here. He says it's no little thing. In other words, it's a huge issue that's developing. Huge disturbance. And we were making a huge business off of this, this religious temple of Artemis. So he likes just something that he likes to, to, to do. Notice again, he refers to the church as the way. And I remember back when I was in college, there was a, a cult called the Way International. I don't know if any of y'all remember that cult, but it was definitely uh, taking one, a good biblical uh, description of the church and using it for false doctrine and heresy. But uh, it's, a good, it's a good word in, in, the, in the context of Scripture because the church are following the way. They're following Jesus Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. So notice uh, in verse 24, he says that uh, Demetrius, the silversmith, was uh, making silver shrines of Artemis. Now the shrine probably was made out of silver, so it would be very expensive. A little uh, copy of the statue of Artemis inside of her holy place inside the temple. Some kind of a little shrine. And he made those things and he caused a lot of other businesses to provide the materials and to maybe make parts of the shrine. So everybody was making a lot of money from these silver miniature statues of Artemis sitting in her temple. And basically what people would do is that they would spend a lot of money they'd buy one of these little shrines then they'd go to the temple and offer it there and leave it there as part of their sacrifice and offering to the goddess uh, Artemis. And so now you've got all this silver coming into the temple and basically the priests would probably, would they, archaeology has never found a, an example of one of these silver shrines and probably the reason why they haven't is because the priests would melt it down and turn it into currency and then spend it. It just made them very, very wealthy. But uh, the temple of Artemis was like a cash cow to these people. I mean, it was big business. And Demetrius, his business was providing a lot of revenues downstream from his business to other craftsmen. And so they were all making a lot of money off this whole religious thing. But their sales were starting to slump. And that begins to get their attention. The success of the gospel and the light of truth was beginning to change people in how they lived and how they spent their money and where they went to worship so that the, the bottom line of these businesses was being impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So their pocketbooks were being affected. And he emphasizes this in verse 25. These he gathered together, that is all these other craftsmen, Demetrius gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. In other words, follow the money. If you want to find where the riot is, follow the money, follow the bucks. And that's what's going on here. Our prosperity depends upon the worship of Artemis. And these guys, particularly Paul, is undermining that. 
So you can see their heart is really more tied to their money than it is to really anything else. And you can also remember back in Philippi on the second missionary journey, the owner of the slave girl, remember that slave girl had the, the demon spirit called Python and she was prophesying and making a ton of money for these guys. And when Paul cast a demon out of her, that affected their prosperity. It affected their cash cow, that little girl. And so they had him beat with rods and thrown into prison. Well, same similar thing here. There's going to be a riot that's going to break out. Now, Demetrius is kind of the ringleader of the trade union. He's kind of a union boss, if you will. He's over the guild of all these craftsmen. And his intent is to stir up a mob to go deal with Paul. To get rid of him. So he points the finger directly at Paul in verse 26. And he says, you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Now, what's kind of funny about this is he is saying this to poke fun at Paul and to ridicule Paul. Paul was saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Can you believe Paul saying that? I mean, their idea of uh, Artemis or any of their man-made shrines were no longer God or sacred was just ridiculous to them. It was preposterous that Paul would say that gods made with hands are no gods at all. I mean, it's kind of like a no-brainer for most common people, but in their minds, this is ludicrous, it's laughable, it's the most stupid thing I ever heard. Now, this Paul guy, he's about as sharp as a marble. He's out in the water. He only has one oar in the water. He's just kind of going in circles. I mean, they were probably just mocking and laughing at him for making this ridiculous statement that gods made with human hands are not really gods at all. So apparently, that's some one of the things Paul was was teaching and saying. And then in verse 27, Demetrius, who's a very crafty, effective persuader of people, begins to lay out the danger assessment from the Apostle Paul. So in verse 27, he says, not only is there a danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, so our trade is being undermined, our business is being undermined. Then secondly, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless. So he's undermining the temple. And then, the apex, he says, and that she, referring to Artemis, whom all of Asia and the world worship will be dethroned from her magnificence. So he's attacking our trade, he's attacking our temple, and he's, he's attacking our goddess. And that's what the Gospel does. It attacks the idols of the world. It, it, it confronts them with the folly and the foolishness of idolatry, of worshiping false gods. And that's what Paul's ministry in effect was, was uh, producing. Now I just want to notice in verse 27, notice the exaggeration, although really it probably wasn't much of an exaggeration, but he says, referring to Artemis, she whom all of Asia and the world worship. 
So he's, uh, he's saying that basically, and she was, Artemis was worshipped all over the place. She was a very popular god. She was a fertility goddess, goddess of the hunt. But there was a lot of stuff being, being a lot of attention given to her. But he's, he's a bit, uh, probably, uh, exaggerate, exaggerating maybe just a little bit, although she was a very powerful goddess throughout the Roman Empire. But what we find him using here is something that you find oftentimes used today in the news media, and it's a logical fallacy of distraction. And that logical fallacy is called ad populum. <laughs> I'm looking at one of my logic students that I had for. It's ad populum, and this is the logical fallacy. It's basically appeals to the masses as your authority. Now, kids do this all the time to your parents. Well, mom or dad, everybody else is doing it. That's the logical fallacy of distraction because they're appealing to the masses as an authority to saying, then this must be right. It must be true. And that's what Demetrius is doing. The whole world. You know, worships her. So therefore, she must be true. She must be the goddess that we believe her to be. Because the whole world follows her. You see, that's a, that's a logical fallacy of distraction. It's appealing to a false authority. Now, based on that, the way it happens today is uh, the same thing goes on when you watch the evening news and they bring all these opinion polls up. Do not trust opinion polls. Oftentimes they are manipulated by the way they phrase the question, but they are used to manipulate and persuade politically. Don't trust them. 65% of so people believe, 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 whatever it is, and so now you think, well, golly, the majority of people must believe it, so I guess it must be good, or it must be right, or it must be true. That is a fallacy. It's a logical fallacy. Uh, if you if you put an authority where it doesn't belong, well, so what? Everybody else believes it. That doesn't make it right. Doesn't make it true. So be very very careful with all these opinion polls. Uh, I read one recently. Sixty three percent of Americans believe that same sex couples should have the right to marry. Well, the majority must believe it, so it must be right. It must be good. Well, that's the that's the the, the logical fallacy. So what if 63% believe that? That doesn't make it right. And it doesn't mean that I have to agree with that. So again, you have to be very leery of all these opinion polls, especially as we get close to an election. you got to understand how oftentimes people try to persuade others and manipulate people by these appealing to the masses or appealing to the majorities or whatever. So be very, very careful with that. So Paul, according to Demetrius, is attacking our trade, he's attacking our temple, and he's attacking our goddess, whom everybody in Asia and everybody in the world is worshiping. In other words, he's attacking everything that's sacred to us, everything that fills our pockets with silver and money, he's undermining. He's robbing our city of its glory and its prestige within the world. So that's basically what they're accusing uh, the Apostle Paul of doing. Now let me, let me back off again, come back to this statement. 
in verse 26 where Demetrius says he's accusing Paul of saying something asinine and that's gods made with hands or no gods at all. And this is just a reflection of just the deep darkness of depravity. I mean, you would think that if you went into your workshop and you got your tools out and you took a big chunk of rock or wood and you carved it down into an image of Artemis or Apollo or whoever it might be, and then you go stick it on a table that suddenly this has become a God and you're going to bow down before it and worship it. I mean, it's pretty ridiculous. But it happens all the time. And it's a, what it does is it reveals the density of the blindness and the darkness that comes from a depraved heart that cannot see the light. And I'm reminded of uh, Psalm 115 verse 4-8. and through eight. And here's, a, here's the folly of it. Just listen to the psalmist. He says, Our idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They can't make a sound with their throat. And now here's the effect. The effect of idolatry. The effect of the deep darkness of depravity. That those who make them will become like them. Everyone who puts their trust in them. In other words, when they make an idol, and they attribute to that idol divine features. Although that idol cannot see, hear, it cannot think, it cannot walk, it cannot do anything. Think of Dagon falling down before the Ark of the Covenant in in the Philistine cities. They're just a block of wood. They're a dead stone. Has no life in it. And those who make those objects and worship them, they become like them spiritually. They become all the more lifeless if you can get of degrees of, of death. They enter into a darkness of depravity that they become just like that lifeless, worthless object that they're calling a God that can't see, can't feel, can't hear, can't speak. And spiritually, they just become like that. And this is the effect of idolatry. It just shuts down all spiritual sensitivities so that there's no life, there's no light at all within them. And this is really what uh, Jesus said in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light, the so-called religious light that you think that you have, if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now, who's he talking about? He's primarily pointing the finger at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. Oh, they thought they had the light. Oh, they thought they had fellowship with God. Oh, they thought they were good religious people. 
But if the light within you is really darkness, then how great is that darkness? And that's the danger. That's the worldview of Ephesus. It's the worldview of many in America today. That they think they have the light, but they're really full of darkness. They think they see clearly. Oh, they think their morality is, is just. But they are full of darkness. And how, how great is the darkness? seems to me our own worldview is uh, around uh, us in America and in the world is, is very much like this type of idolatry. People that believe in evolution, they think they see the light. People that embrace abortion, they think they have that moral right to that high ground. The LGBTQ, they think they have, again, the right uh, to do and live and, and to practice how they want to. They think they have it. They think they're on the high ground. But see, if the light that is within them is darkness, how great is the darkness? With evolution, you really think that swamp scum can morph into a living cell tissue? Has it ever been done? And we look at that and we think that's, that's pretty folly. But they believe it. I mean, they think they've got the scientific light. We understand it all. Science has proven it. You can't convince them otherwise. Or abortion. You can't, you can't see that that's killing human life. They don't see it. It's so obvious and clear to us. Thank God for the Gospel of Jesus Christ that people that commit all kinds of sins can be forgiven and, and, and healed from that. But they don't see that for what it is. Or again, the, the gay lifestyle. They don't see that as unnatural. It is biologically unsustainable, but they don't see it. They're just so into the idols of their own lusts or their own self-desires that they are blind to it. So if the light that is within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Well, this uh, expression of, our, of, of Demetrius mocking Paul because he said God's made with hands or no gods at all. He doesn't see it. If there's anything that seems to be obvious, it's that, that if you make a God, it's really not a God. If you make it, it can't be a God. And yet they think it is. And there's a depth of depravity. There's a darkness of depravity there that just defies uh, common sense in my mind. Well, in verse 28, when they heard this, they were filled with rage. They began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. So now we find that this, wherever, wherever Demetrius stirred up all the craftsmen, uh, we don't know, but they began to make their way again to the, to the grand theater. This is what we've seen already at Ephesus. This is where it happened. This has been excavated. Uh, it's a, it's an amazing, uh, theater. It could hold 25,000 people. They brought Gaius and Aristarchus right down there in the middle. And now the theater is filling up with hundreds, thousands of people. 
And not only that, but there's a great crowd from the city and there's all this confusion as we see later on that many of them don't even know why they're there for. They just know that something bad has happened and they're there to lend a hand and to help solve the problem or whatever. So they drag Gaius and Aristarchus into the, into the theater. And notice again in verse 26, backing up there briefly, what uh, Demetrius had said that Paul has turned a considerable number of people away. And so what we're seeing again is this conflict of worldviews, this battle going on. And the gospel, by the grace of God, was having an impact on the culture, an impact upon the city. Because as we see in that verse 26 again, referring back to that, a considerable number of people had been changed and impacted by the Gospel. So we've already seen earlier last week where many of them brought out their magic books because these believers, because sanctification is gradual, that they still were kind of messing around with some of this magic stuff, but they brought all their books out we saw last week and they put them in a big pile and they burnt it all. 50,000 pieces of silver worth of, of books. So their lives are being changed. They weren't buying those silver shrines anymore. They weren't going to the temple. In other words, the gospel was making an impact on the culture. It was affecting business. It was affecting lifestyles. So this was something marvelous that was going on. All the way back up in verse 20, that it says the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. So the gospel was changing lives, not only how they spent their time, but also how they spent their money. And the result of that is because it was big enough to measure the impact of the gospel, the, the uh, worldview of the pagans now is revolting. They are rioting against it. You find the war, the battle. This is what happens. Whenever the gospel begins to spread and change people's lives, Satan will always oppose it in one way or another. And that's what's going on at Ephesus. So this big riot is the direct response of the world to the changes made by the gospel. And so that's why this war, this battle, is really inevitable. Now in the midst of this, we see in verse 30, the providence of God that protects the Apostle Paul and Gaius and Aristarchus as well. But in verse 30 it says, when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. They knew this huge crowd that's here is going to be deadly. They're, they're out for bear. If Paul goes in there, they're going to tear him apart. So his disciples say, no, you're not going in there. You're too valuable. You're, you're, we're not going to, to let you go out and and uh, let them kill you or whatever they might do to him. So his disciples come to his aid and help to persuade him not to go. But then look at verse 31. Also, some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. Now this is interesting. These, uh, this reference to the Asiarchs. Who are these guys? Well, literally the word just means rulers of Asia. And they were leaders of the provincial council of Asia. They may have come from other cities, but they come to Ephesus, which is, you know, the headquarters. 
And they are leaders of the various provincial council of Asia. So they're very powerful. They're very political in that regard. But also, they are said to have been administrators of the temples of imperial cult worship. That is, worship the Caesars, the emperors. So they had a religious side to them as well. They were there to protect the worship of the Roman gods, but primarily the emperor who is oftentimes viewed as the son of God. So they had a political power. They also had a religious power. But notice we're told that they are friends of the Apostle Paul. And this is in verse 31. And I find that very amazing. That the Apostle Paul, bold as he was with the Gospel, very clear in calling an idol an idol, nevertheless used a certain amount of of wisdom and skill in communicating with government leaders and authorities. In other words, he he wasn't rude to them. He didn't just kind of come out and blast them. And I think he followed Christ's warnings in Matthew 10 to his disciples when he said, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. These guys were Paul's friends. He did not so offend them or abuse them in any way that they turned again. They were his friends. And that tells me that Paul was very wise and very careful with how he dealt with government leaders. Um, again, he wouldn't back down from the gospel, but he was, he presented it in such a way that they were not overly offended, I guess, because they remained his friends. So they actually come to Paul these very powerful political religious leaders, and they persuade him, don't go into the theater because they're gonna, something bad is going to happen to you. And I just think it, it teaches us something about how Paul interacted with those political leaders. And we know from Romans 13 that Paul says, look, you give respect to those uh, civil authorities over you. You honor the king. So that I think he was very respectful with them. He didn't uh, belittle them or run them down or anything like that. I think he was very, very wise. And I think it gives us some um, some good wisdom in dealing with our government authorities today as well. Uh, what we do learn from this is that Rome had not yet looked at the church as a threat or dangerous or illegal. And I think this is probably one of Luke's purposes in including this long narrative is to emphasize that, that under God's providential protection that the church would still be able to operate without people coming against them, without the Roman government coming against them. Now that's going to change later on. But at this point, they, they seem to be uh, on good terms with the, the Roman government. And then in verse 32 through 34, we find that uh, Alexander, a Jew, is there at the, at the theater, and there's all this riot, and he wants to make sure, look, it's not us Jews that are doing this, it's Paul. These are, this is a different group, but, and he's probably going to stand up and justify, uh, that it's not the Jews that are causing all this chaos, but before he can actually say anything, 
there erupts this big two hour shouting in verse 34. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Two hours. I mean, this would be like at a, at a, at a football stadium and people are shouting for two hours or whatever it is, but they're all shouting the same thing. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. It kind of reminds me of what Jesus said in Sermon on the Mount on prayer. He said, don't pray like the Gentiles with all the meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. And this is meaningless repetition. Two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Over and over and over again as if maybe that's going to get her attention or something. She can't, she doesn't have ears. She can't hear anyway. But they're doing that for two hours. And then we read in verse 35 through 41, another guy comes into the scene and he's called the town clerk in verse 35. And he actually comes in, he's a very wise man, and he calms down the crowd. He lets them kind of expend all of their energy. Two hours of shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And finally, they're, they're probably just worn out and looking for a Coke or water or something. And then he addresses them very wisely. Verse 35, And after quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the great Artemis and the image which fell down from heaven? The great, uh, uh, skip something. All those know that the city of, of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven. So he, obviously he's, he's, uh, giving the party line. He's agreeing with them. Look, I agree with you. You know, and apparently this image that fell down from heaven, they think could have been a meteorite that fell down and maybe kind of was in the shape of a woman or maybe they carved into the shape of the woman, but that was one of the objects inside the temple. So he's acknowledging all that. And then he says in verse 36, since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. I kind of wonder about that because obviously to preach the gospel, you're kind of blaspheming their goddess. So I'm not sure if he really understood the gospel himself. But he is he's trying to calm things down. Verse 38, he points them to the legal courts. So then if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything else beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events since there is no real cause for it. And in this connection, we will be unable to account for this disorderly assembly. Now, this town clerk, he's the chief executive of the city. It'd be kind of like Mayor Holt of Oklahoma City. That's this guy. So he's got a lot of power, a lot of authority. He's also the mediator between the city of Ephesus and Rome. Okay? So he is kind of Rome's mediator representative in Ephesus. And he is basically calming them down. He's agreeing with them. He's asserting the innocence of Gaius and Aristarchus. They haven't done anything illegal in his, in his understanding. He directs them to the legal courts and He warns them of disorderliness. In other words, you're here, it's unlawful, you're creating a riot, and if this gets back to Rome, let me tell you, 
who's going to be in trouble. It's not going to be Paul or these two guys. It's going to be y'all for doing the riot. Now, he speaks with authority because he's representing Rome there. So they say, oh, oh, okay. So he dismisses them and apparently they all leave. So this is a a tremendous uh, providential blessing from God. And it just proves to us that God controls the hearts of kings. He turns their hearts in His hand like streams of water. And that He is sovereignly protecting the church and giving them a, a, a time to continue to minister without the oppression of the Roman government. Again, that will change later. But so far, so good. So you just see again the, the kind providence of God in protecting the church at this point. Let me kind of conclude with a couple of observations. Again, what we see, I think what is of interest to Luke in writing the book of Acts in part to show the spread of the gospel, but also to show that the Roman Empire had not yet turned against the church. We saw this in Gallio and Corinth. Remember when they brought Paul before Gallio, who was the proconsul? And he just said, look, don't bother me with this stuff. And he basically released Paul. He he was protected. The gospel was protected. Same thing here in Ephesus. And I think again, what Luke is trying to point out is that the church at this point and the gospel was not considered an enemy of Rome so it could flourish under the sovereign providence and protection of God Almighty. And I tell you what, it reminds me that we continue to need God's providence and protection on the church today. Because we continually get blamed for things. I mean, back in March, they were blaming Christians for basically the coronavirus in the New York Times because of Trump and some of his Christian connections. Some of the Christians he listens to makes my hair stand up. But um, we need God's protection because there is a battle of the worldviews going on. And the worldview of the world hates the biblical worldview. It hates the gospel. It hates Jesus Christ. And we need God's protection. And I think we can also see that it is uh, certainly legal to use the, the, the law system to protect our rights and our religious liberties. Uh, we can certainly do that. But we need wisdom and respect in dealing with political authorities. We need to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We need to honor the king and we need to respect civil authorities and we need to be obedient in, in the areas in which we can that do not violate the Scriptures. We need to speak the truth boldly, but we need to be sensitive. I think Paul reflects that sensitivity as well. But also, I want to just kind of end up with this whole notion of the battle. The battle of worldviews. Because wherever the Gospel is claiming new ground, whenever lives are being brought under the reign and rule of Jesus Christ and the Kingdom of Christ, and our lives will begin to change. And as our lives change, the more people change, the more the culture is impacted, the greater will be the attack and the opposition of the worldview of idolatry and the, and the paganism around us. Now when God's kingdom advances, Satan will counterattack. And our culture in America today, I think is very much like the culture, the worldview of Ephesus, in that there is a lot of idolatry that 
that we live with uh, today as well. People idolize all kinds of things, whether it's money or the American dream or pleasure or the lust of the flesh or the lust of the eyes or the boastful pride of life. We can idolize anything and make it more important than our relationship with the Lord. And that's, that's an idol. Materialism is the goddess of choice for many. And many today worship at the altar of self. It's just, I want to do what I want to do. Or the altar of sensualism. Or sexual freedom. Or degrading entertainment. And when the church reflects the values of the world, then we lose our witness. But when we reflect the values of Christ, then the Gospel goes out and has the opportunity to affect and change others by God's grace. The church is to be in the world like a ship is to be in the ocean. But woe to the ship if the ocean gets into it. And if the world gets into the church, then we sink and our witness sinks. So that if we look like the world and act like the world and think like the world and speak like the world, then we are full of darkness. We may think we're full of light, but we are full of darkness. And if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? James says it. He just lays it out plainly. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So the challenge to us, seeing the impact of the Gospel of Ephesus, that it was changing the culture so that there was a big riot in, in opposition to the church and the growth of the witness of the church. What about our witness today? What about your witness? What kind of an effect are you having, am I having, on those around me? Do they know that we're a Christian? Do they know that I love Jesus Christ? Or is my life so cluttered by the things of the world that they don't see any difference in my life versus any unbeliever out there? And if that's the case, then we lose our witness. And I think that that convicts me. Because I think we all struggle with that with an area of, of worldliness and idolatry within our life that we have to continually be repenting of. To examine our hearts. To seek more grace from God that, that Christ might be the primary love of my life in areas that He's not right now. That the Lord would convict me and help me to cast off the idols and to pursue Him first and foremost. We should examine our hearts and our lives to see if my life is, is it bringing any opposition at all. Not that we're looking for opposition. We don't look for that. We don't want to be like a martyr. But is, is Christ living His life through me to such a degree that others see it and unbelievers react negatively to me because of it? Now we need to do it in love and we need to do it in a way that we love other people and kindness and all that kind of stuff. But there was an impact taking place at Ephesus. Culture was being impacted. Businesses were being affected because lives were being changed by the Gospel. What about Oklahoma City? In what way is our lives affecting others because they can see within us 
that we're different. We spend our money differently. We go to places differently. We do things differently. We speak differently. Our vocabulary has changed because Christ has made a difference within our lives. Well, may the Lord make us His holy temple, the light of the world and the salt of the earth. May He continue His work of grace in sanctifying us that we might be to the world what the church should be. That we should be beaming out the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That my life should be different than the world around us. And if it's not, then Lord, forgive us. And Lord, give us the grace to change. What we really need, bottom line, is just more love for Christ and less love for the world. See, John who warned his readers to guard their hearts from idolatry said, don't love the world or the things in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father. It's from the world. It's not going to last either. And I think we need to continually examine ourselves so that our lives, by God's grace, might make a difference. Not that we're looking for opposition, but we're looking for opportunities to share the Gospel with those who are still in the darkness of spiritual death. And may God use you and use me to that end by His grace. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father God, we do thank You, Lord, that we can see this great uh, conflict going on at Ephesus and just to know that it's inevitable that wherever the kingdom of God is spreading, that the kingdom of Satan will always fight back. And we're not to be fearful of that opposition, but we're to desire to look for opportunities to make Christ known. So Lord, we pray as Your church that oftentimes struggles with our own darkness that struggles with our own worldliness and idolatry, that the Spirit of God would continue to work within us to cleanse Your holy temple, to cast out the money changers, drive out the people selling things within the temple, to make Your temple a holy temple. Lord, do that for our lives. Do that for my heart, that I might be a better witness for Jesus Christ. For we ask this in His name. Amen.